DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with Ignatius Press, presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. A sea adventure, a study of evil, and a cast of fascinating characters, including the crazed captain who is obsessed with hunting down the whale that maimed him. Moby Dick is all of this and more. Based on the author's experience as a sailor, Herman Melville's probing look at the human heart has been read and analyzed from every angle, including the most absurd. The tragic tale is looked at afresh in the Ignatius Critical Edition. We now begin our discussion on Herman Melville and Moby Dick. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's fun and fine as always. We're going to be talking about uh, such an American classic, Moby Dick, yet its author, Herman Melville, would die in what we might call obscurity. For something that was a classic, it's kind of interesting that it was forgotten for so many years. Well, I think one of the interesting lessons about Melville's life is that he was very popular when he was populist. In other words, when he was writing Potboilers, his, his early novels about the South Seas that just were swashbuckling adventures. But when he wrote something with more gravitas, more depth, that was saying, shall we say, more important things that perhaps people should have struggled with in order to get closer to and understanding the mysteries of life. You know, he was shunned and people weren't interested in, in, in making that sort of effort. So, you know, it's really, it really shows sometimes that, that we sacrifice, if you like, uh, money and worldly fame for something more worthwhile. And, and Melville, I think, you know, was determined to write something that had gravitas and weight. He did that. He suffered the price in material terms. You know, he, he could not earn a living thereafter from, from writing books. And indeed, you know, uh, Billy Budd, one of his best books, the book generally considered to be uh, the best of his books mm-hmm. after Moby Dick, wasn't even published in his own lifetime because he, was, he had fallen so much into obscurity and was published posthumously. And it was probably 30 or 40 or so years after his death before the, the the books were rediscovered. So, yeah, I mean, there's an irony there, but I think ultimately, you know, that Melville now has, if you like, a place uh, in posterity, which he would not have had if he'd been successful in his life. There, there, there is itself something which is worth contemplating. For instance, if you ask someone to name who St. John Fisher was, mm-hmm. who he was, they would know. But if you ask them, to, could they name one other bishop living in England uh, at the same time as St. John Fisher, and they, w- they wouldn't be able to name any of them mm-hmm. because the, the ones that basically chose worldliness and, should we say, the popularity of their peers over that which really matters are now forgotten. 
And so I think, you know, it, perhaps on a, on, a, on a lesser level, but nonetheless, Melville, in choosing something which was worthy of true literature, has survived, whereas he wouldn't have done if he'd just written basically trash fiction. A wonderful gift in having the Ignatius critical editions to be able to journey with into this work is that, you know, as it points out, there have been many critical attempts to look at Moby Dick, but when you look at it as a whole, as a as a totality of work, and not just Ahab's story or Ishmael's story, but the whole story, it's really quite profound. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the great things about the Ignatius Critical Edition is that we actually get some of the leading scholars of Melville that are around today, tradition-oriented scholars, who look at various aspects of the work. I mean, I'm not an Americanist. I'm certainly not an expert on Moby Dick. But the Ignatius Critical Edition uh, assembles several fine scholars who come at the work from different angles, but all of which enlighten us as to its true depth and value. And the editor of the edition, of course, is Mary Reichardt, who's, amongst other things, is editor of the Catholic Encyclopedia of uh, of literature and has taught for many years at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. So, you know, th- these, these are fine, tradition-oriented scholars looking at this great work of literature. He would have a friendship for at least a period in his life with Nathaniel Hawthorne, yeah. another that we've talked of who it seems as though both men were in quest of a deeper truth. And it seems to be reflected in Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, but then also in what, how can we say it, how Melville's work evolved into Moby Dick. Absolutely. In fact, I'm very pleased that you've drawn the parallel, not just between Melville and Hawthorne. As you say, they were friends, and Hawthorne was certainly a significant influence upon Melville, but also uh, the the parallel between the two works, The Scarlet Letter, probably Hawthorne's best-known work, and Moby Dick, Melville's best-known work. There are a lot of similarities between the two works, as there is indeed between the two authors. For one thing, there's an engagement with Calvinism. There's an engagement with the darkness of Calvinism, that sort of the deterministic view of humanity as basically being dung, that, uh, that we can do nothing and we're sort of saved, if you like, at, at whim by, by God um, or not. Mm-hmm. And if we're not, then it doesn't matter what we do, we're basically condemned to hell. So this sort of dark, doom-laden, gloom-laden determinism of Calvinism is something which both Hawthorne and Melville are quite clearly uncomfortable with. And it's in that dimension of, uh, of uh, should we say, what we would see as Catholics as a perversion of Christian belief is grappled with by both men. But on the other hand, you know, if, if, you, if you want to look at Calvinism as being, if you like, pessimistic about human nature, mm-hmm. they were all nothing but dung and God just saves some of us because he feels like it, as it were. On the other end, we have you know, the optimism of the transcendental idealists of the time of, you know, of Melville's and, and, and Hawthorne's contemporaries, such as Emerson and Thoreau, who basically you know, believed uh, that following in the footsteps of people such as uh, Rousseau in, in France, you know, that there was no mortal sin, that we're not fallen, that we're all basically good, and that we, as individuals, can attain perfection without the need for grace, without the need for love as a Christian would understand it, through sacrifice, etc. So in other words, what, what we see, I think, Melville and Hawthorne both doing is grappling with the darkness and pessimism of Calvinism and the, the, the rose-tinted naivete of the optimism of transcendental idealism. So I think that you know, through this, the, the, the error of pessimism on the one side, the error of optimism on the other, 
both Melville and Hawthorne are steering a middle path, which is, is basically leading, albeit by a circuitous route in their case, towards sanity. It's interesting, Joseph, that Mary Reichardt brings out the fact that Melville in 1850 would have this time where he would, it's right before the publication of Moby Dick, that he immersed himself in Shakespeare. And he enjoyed very much so the English writers and the dramatists and those types of things. Do you suppose that might have had an effect on the style and effect that would become Moby Dick? Oh, absolutely. In fact, what we're seeing in the case of Melville's engagement with Shakespeare and and English literature is what we indeed are hoping that Ignatius Critical Editions will do for anybody who engages with them. And that's that basically we broaden our understanding of reality. We broaden our understanding of of humanity, the, of the cosmos, by engaging with these great minds of Western civilization. You know, to walk into a Shakespeare play is walking into a cathedral of the soul. And you, you, you look up and you see the beauty and majesty of it. You, you can expand into the space it presents to us. So Melville's engagement with great writers such as Shakespeare would have actually given him, if you like, a broader and deeper perspective, which of course was absolutely necessary for the breadth and depth that we see in Moby Dick. Well, on to the novel. Moby Dick, boy, they're the tale of good and evil. And who is the good and who is the evil? That's, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I see basically two things going. Well, there's, there's multifarious things going on. Mm-hmm. Let's, not, let's not oversimplify this, simplify this very complex book. But for the purposes of this relatively brief conversation, I think that the two axiomatic aspects of, 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 the, of, of the novel center on the, the two principal characters, Ishmael and, and Ahab. And I think that Ishmael emerges basically as homo viator. In other words, as a man on a journey. He's not a static character. He begins, if you like, at the beginning with a sort of a youthful, reckless individualism that, that seeks adventure for its own sake. And then he sort of, if you like, sinks from that reckless individualism into a shallow conformism where he's sort of sucked up into you know, Ahab's obsession and, and conforms to it somewhat passively. And then at the end of the work, he a- attains a, a degree of wisdom that's come through the experience of the novel and through the experience of the suffering that he's experienced the novel and through his experience of the evil that he's experienced. So wisdom through experience and suffering at the end. So we see, if you like, in Ishmael, someone who's a dynamic character, who's not static, whereas Ahab is the opposite. You know, the Ahab is static because he's basically self-centered. How can he go anywhere? Now, Homo Viatum is man on a journey, man on a quest who grows uh, through his engagement with the reality that surrounds him. Well, Ahab basically has made himself the reality and his obsession with revenge and vengeance on Moby Dick, the whale, for having maimed him. So Ahab's completely static. And if you like, in, Ahab, in, if in Ishmael we see progress towards wisdom, in Ahab we see pride preceding a fall. So I think we have these two dynamic characters, one of whom, if you like, is at least progressing in the direction of heaven, although, of course, whether he, whether he actually gets there by the end is a moot point, mm-hmm. and Ahab, basically, who's not capable of progressing anywhere because he can't get beyond the confines of his own ego. Moby Dick by Herman Melville Chapter 135. The Chase. Third Day. Diving beneath the settling ship, the whale ran quivering along its keel. 
but turning under water, swiftly shot to the surface again, far off the other bow, but within a few yards of Ahab's boat, where, for a time, he lay quiescent. I turn my body from the sun. From all ye furthest bounds, pour ye now in, ye bold billows of my whole foregone life, and top this one piled comber of my death. Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale. To the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. Sink all coffins and all hearses to one common pool. And since neither can be mine, let me then tow to pieces, while still chasing thee, though tied to thee, Thus I give up the spear. The harpoon was darted. The stricken whale flew forward. With igniting velocity the line ran through the grooves, ran foul. Ahab stooped to clear it. He did clear it. But the flying turn caught him round the neck, and voicelessly as Turkish mutes bowstring their victim, he was shot out of the boat, ere the crew knew he was gone. Next instant, the heavy eye-splice in the rope's final end flew out of the stark, empty tub, knocked down an oarsman, and, smiting the sea, disappeared in its depths. For an instant the tranced boat's crew stood still, then turned. The ship! Great God, where is the ship? Soon they, through dim, bewildering mediums, saw her sidelong fading phantom, as in the gaseous Fata Morgana, only the uppermost mass out of the water, while fixed by infatuation, or fidelity, or fate, to their once lofty perches, the pagan harpooners still maintained their sinking lookouts on the sea. And now concentric circles seized the lone boat itself, and all the crew, and each floating oar, and every lance-pole, and spinning, animate and inanimate, all round and round in one vortex, carried the smallest chip of the Pequod out of sight. The narcissist, the complete narcissist, and we've encountered one like that before in the great works, that being Dorian Gray. Right. I mean, here, that's the narcissist. What is it about them that it makes them so appealing, and why do people follow them? Yeah, well, I think that all of us, if you like, have an element of narcissism. Narcissism really is falling in love with ourselves instead of falling in love with that which is beyond ourselves. So, you know, the sin of pride is narcissistic, and the sin of pride, of course, is the, the father of all the other sins. In fact, you could say in some respects that the other sins, philosophically speaking, are merely accidental. They're the aspects by which pride takes form. So lust, for instance, is still pride in the sense that we decide that we are going to do something which, technically speaking, we might believe is wrong, but we give ourselves permission. Well, it's the giving of ourselves permission to commit the sin is an act of pride, because we're making ourselves God and we're superseding God. So basically, you know, we see in Ahab, if you like, admittedly, or in Dorian Gray, and, and, and especially, of course, in the picture of Dorian Gray reflected mm -hmm. back to us, that's the, truth, that's the true picture of Narcissus, of course, not the beautiful youth staring back at us from the mirror or the water, but mm -hmm. the ugly truth of our prideful sin, the golemizing of ourselves through pride. But there's an aspect of that, hopefully not as pronounced as we see it in Dorian Gray or as in Ahab, but there's an aspect of that in all of us, which is why seeing, if you like, or reading uh, these cautionary tales 
about the destructive consequences of pride are very efficacious. They teach us lessons that we need to learn. There also is the character of Starbuck, the first mate, who dares to stand up to Ahab, and yet he gives in. He is an interesting figure to watch throughout this as well. Yeah, I mean, he's a, a weak character, and you could argue that his character it could even be characterized uh, or, or defined by his weakness. But I think that would be an oversimplification, because I think what he is also is a voice of nobility mm-hmm. and a voice even of Christian virtue and, and a voice of wisdom, albeit a voice that perhaps lacks the decisiveness and courage in certain instances. I'm reminded, in fact, of the parallel uh, with Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet. You know, he's mm-hmm, the voice mm-hmm. of wisdom in a world which is completely mad. And basically, you know, it, once we actually get uh, on board ship there, uh, in, and we can see that as a microcosm of the world in some ways, as, as the ark, if you like, or the ship of fools that represents all of humanity. Well, it is a world of madness, and he is virtually the only voice of, of wisdom, all, you know, albeit a voice of wisdom in a, in a fallen personality. And I see a, a, you know, parallels not with Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet, but in, in other works, where basically where the work itself is very dark uh, and is characterized, if you like, by the madness of most of the protagonists, but where there's a, a still small voice of calm or a still small voice of wisdom amidst the madness. So I, I think, for instance, Starbuck, for me, parallels not just Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet, but Nelly in Wuthering Heights, mm-hmm. and that beautiful voice of Christian virtue in the midst of, of, of the madness of, of, of Wuthering Heights. And Elizabeth in Frankenstein, again, you know, the poor Mary Shelley, who's who's very confused, and that confusion pours itself forth in Frankenstein. And yet in Elizabeth, probably the the most sympathetic and perhaps almost the only sympathetic character in Frankenstein is the voice of traditional marriage, or of traditional marriage, if you like, as the antidote to the poison of worldly ambition, to the poison of of scientism, to the poison of pride. So I see see in Starbuck, if you like, uh, a a parallel with Nellie and Elizabeth and Friar Lawrence, and and absolutely necessary, because a work which is predominantly dark, that does not show us glimmers of light is too dark to bear. Uh, mm-hmm. It reminds me perhaps of Oscar Wilde's words that we're, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. We have to be able to look up from the gutter, however dark and dingy and smelly it is, and however dirty it is, at the stars, or as Tolkien would say, above all shadows rides the sun. With, without, without that voice of, of, of sanity, that pinprick of light amidst the darkness, the whole thing becomes unbearable and also ultimately unrealistic because you know we don't live in the worst of all possible worlds. You know, there's always the silver line into the cloud because above all shadows rides the sun, the sun, of course, being God himself. It's a fascinating work, and as in all the literature that we've discussed, it helps to point to an intrinsic truth and sometimes to help us, maybe even guide us if we can enter into this so that we can recognize it that path down a road filled with vice as opposed to one filled with virtue. And when you look at Moby Dick, you look at Ahab, who is so obsessed and so angry that he doesn't see the evil in himself. He ends up projecting it on this white whale, and everyone else buys into that of his own projection. Absolutely. I mean, if you like, it's a premonition and a prophecy of the demagogue, of the tyrant, of the totalitarian leader that uh, 
would come to the fore much more in the following century, the 20th mm-hmm. century, of course, and communism and Nazism, and indeed, one some might say much closer to home in the 21st century in the United States. Um, you know, that basically, that's what I say, that Ishmael sort of goes from reckless individualism, which has its own problems, to a shallow conformism, where he accepts this madman and conforms to this madman's uh, uh, own passions, his own madnesses, and his own monomania, without questioning. I would say Starbucks virtually the only voice of the only dissident voice in this ship of fools. So uh, yeah, it's it's scary. I think one other thing, by the way, though, about Moby Dick, uh, which we shouldn't forget, is one thing that I think Melville does is to show us the difference between, shall we say, physics and metaphysics, or or facts and truth. Chesterton said once that not facts first, truth first. And I think that we need to sort of distinguish between the two because, you know, there are long, some might even say interminable passages in Moby Dick where we're going into, shall we say, the, 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 the physiology of the whale and, and how, to, how to process a whale and every, all the facts, all of the nitty-gritty, all, if you like, the science of uh, the whale. But it's science in a very much a narrow tunnel vision view it's purely facts and not truth because all of that all of that that he tells us over hundreds of pages uh, in the novel about the whale and about the facts of the world doesn't tell us anything about Moby Dick the whale which is uh, Ahab's obsession and about what the whale represents metaphorically in the novel in other words that the metaphorical dimension or the spiritual dimension, if you like, the allegorical dimension is much deeper and extends beyond the pure you know, three dimensions of what the matter of a whale is because the whale represents something which is much, much deeper in the novel. So I think that Melville's showing us by his concentration on all the facts of the whale and yet Ahab's obsession with Moby Dick that there is one way of looking at reality, the purely materialistic way. There's nothing but three dimensions through which which we observe with our five senses. There's that way of looking at it and there's this spiritual dimension. And of course the spiritual dimension can go in either direction. It can either lead, lead us towards wisdom and to truth, or it can lead us towards pride and madness and the demonic. And of course, in Ahab's case, you know, he, 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 he knows all the facts about how to process a whale. But he's obsessed with this dark demonic vision of the whale. Yeah, it is interesting in the Ignatius Critical Editions, they point out that as he began the process of writing Moby Dick, it almost seemed as though it could have become one of his South Sea adventure stories. But something happened about halfway through could it have been that he wanted to go into this deeper quest himself, that he he t- was trying to find something himself in writing this, and this is how this work became so different from the others? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, another parallel that comes to mind to me is that is the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien begins to write the Lord of the Rings as a, a children's story, as the follow-up to The Hobbit, something short and pithy and straightforward and may, may, has profundity, but on a pretty, you know, pretty easy to, to fathom level. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the book, uh, The Lord of the Rings, grows up, and some, some might say grows out of control. And I think we see exactly the same thing with Moby Dick, is that, you know, that, uh, quite clearly Melville, all right, he, 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 it made sense for him, certainly from, the, from a materialistic perspective, to turn out another pot boiler, another one that would sell and, 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 and build upon his success and bring his family money. But he clearly had something 
more serious, more profound, more important in mind. He wanted to fathom questions of human nature, the relationship between man and God, the relationship between good and evil. Um, we need to remember there's an awful lot of uh, biblical references also in, in Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. There's the presence of prophets and prophecies. And you can't have the presence of prophets and prophecies, especially if those prophecies come true, without it being very heavily suggestive of, the, of an overarching providence at work. And if there's an overarching providence at work, there's a God at work. So, you know, all of this is part of, the, if you like, the, the, the deep, rich spiritual fabric uh, of Moby Dick. And it, to go back to the the beginning of the conversation, Joseph, when we were talking about his at least destiny on this earth, uh, once again, his writings would never necessarily reach the same zenith that he experienced with Moby Dick, would die in obscurity. You know, the tales of his alcoholism and the blessings of a good wife who would help him to make it through those years. But what is it about some of those authors who are able to hit deep within some of those truths, only to have their own trajectory seem to bounce in maybe another direction? Well, I think that there can be various various uh, reasons for that. I think in Melville's case, it's if one doesn't shake the darkness of Calvinism, mm-hmm. of this uh, predestination, uh, this understanding that we're all just a pile of dung, and if we're not saved, we must be lost. If if we can't shake that off, and I think part of Melville's motivation in Moby Dick is to try to shake that off, first of all, to make sense of it, and then to get rid of it, having made sense of it. If one doesn't succeed in doing that, and even if he, you know, he's obviously grappling to do that intellectually, but if emotionally he fails to do that, then he has to carry that with him. And there's a sort of, there's a darkness in, in, in the very heart of that worldview, which can manifest itself um, in, uh, in, in, in alcoholism or in, in other manifestations that are akin to despair. Um, you know, if, if we believe we're not saved, uh, then we're doomed. I mean, there's nothing in between. It's not a question, it's not, it's not this homo viator where, okay, we fall, we fall. Uh, mm-hmm. And we realize how miserable and pathetic we are, but we can pray for forgiveness, seek forgiveness, and seek for the grace of God so that we can get up on our feet again and, and, and stumble on. Well, if, if, if you don't have that view, if you have this, this view of predestination uh, and, and you feel that you're not saved, and certainly if, you, if you're not going to a Calvinist church uh, and you are aware of being a miserable sinner, then it's very easy to fall into the belief that, well, I must be one of the doomed. Well, once you've got that in your head, you can have all sorts of psychological issues going with you. Mm. Any final thoughts on Herman Melville or and or Moby Dick? Well, only again that we are greatly enriched by our engagement with these masterpieces, and that we become wiser, deeper people through the experience of of reading them. And so th- these works are gifts. They are in some ways icons or cathedrals of Western civilization, cathedrals of the word, if you like, and we should visit them frequently. We should visit them frequently and with, and with, and with a degree, not perhaps of reverence that we'd, we'd, we'd give to a holy shrine, but certainly, certainly with a degree of deep respect for, for the truths that they unfold to us and the experience that they bequeath to us. Mm, wonderful. Joseph, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure as always, Chris. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with 
hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.